everyone, welcome to the very first episode of Joel's Podcast Show. I'm your host, Jamarco Maffini. Uh, for the first episode, I sit down with a friend of mine, Antonio Piazza. He's a mentor, mediator, and uh, we talk about how his process of mediation is so unique and um, how it's lent itself to you know an 80 or 90 or more percent success rate in dispute resolutions. Um, this is my first podcast, so there's a bit of a learning curve in like, some of the recording and stuff. And you'll hear in between us speaking, uh, you'll hear us breathe and such. So um, it's not because we're winded. It's my fault that there's an effect on um, the software I used to record. But I figured it out by the third episode. So without further ado, the first uh, episode. Welcome to uh, episode one of Joao's podcast show. My name is Jamarco Maffini and I'm your host. And today I am joined by a dear friend of mine, mentor, and just awesome human all around, Mr. Tony Piazza. He is a renowned mediator. And uh, today we're just going to be talking about his life, mediation, and uh, a little bit about everything. So welcome, Tony. How are you doing today? Really, really good. <laughs> awesome. So uh, I guess just to start off with uh, what uh, maybe ex- we can explain to people who don't know what is mediation. And um, yeah, we'll start with that. Well, that's actually a big question. You could give a small answer to it and say that it's basically having a third party facilitate negotiations between two or more parties. A lot of people understand it to be basically having someone carrying positions back and forth between the parties. The particular iteration of mediation that I do uh, is different. Um, Basically, it's focused on mitigating the disruptive effect of reactivity in direct negotiations when two or more parties are in conflict, and instead redirecting what ends up becoming a dialectic between them Uh, a reactive process between them into a more productive dialogue with the third party with the hopeful result that by the end of that process, which in the version that we do is usually just a one-day process, the parties have gained enough objectivity about their realistic options, about their risks of continuing with the fight that they're in, that they can make a choice to resolve it and come to terms that both or all parties can live with. So it's a, it, it is a facilitated negotiation between parties, but in the version that I do, it's a facilitated dialogue with a third party leading to a resolution with the other side or the other parties. And is the resolution legally binding or is it just an agreement? In the work that I do, it's legally binding because at the end, the parties execute a settlement agreement that specifically states that it's enforceable in court. Okay. And uh, how did you get into mediation? Because mediation itself doesn't seem like it's uh, there's a direct path to it. Um, uh, most people, I would assume, probably have a legal background, but um, how did you how truth, did you start? Truth be told, I stumbled into it. I had been practicing, I started practicing law as a lawyer in California in 1974. Um, by 1979, it had become evident to me that it was just not my life path. Um, it was not making me a better person, someone that I enjoyed being with. But I had no clue as to what I wanted to do. So I took a couple months off and just to keep body and soul together, 
after that little sabbatical, um, I took some contract work with a woman who was a litigator who had a lawsuit that was coming to trial and she needed some backup. She was a solo practitioner. And she had reached a point in her career, she had been practicing litigation for about 24 years at that point, that she thought, you know, there must be a better way, a more efficient way of resolving these kinds of civil uh, conflicts. And she heard about mediation. She didn't know a lot about it, but she thought, you know, I'll bet we could, you know, start using that to resolve civil lawsuits. And she asked me if I had any interest in it. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, at that point, I was single. I didn't really have a sense of where I wanted to go in life, and it sounded like it would be interesting to start something new. And so I just kind of stumbled into it. Wow. So was the mediation field, um, was there a mediation field before you had stumbled on? Not in, not in resolving civil litigation. Mediation was being used <clears throat> to resolve domestic disputes like family law, uh, divorce things. It was being used in some neighborhood uh, conflicts, uh, and it was being used in uh, one form in organized management labor uh, negotiations. So if something was heading for a strike or was already in a strike, they would bring in someone who was a mediator. But in none of those fields was it being used in the way that we needed to craft it to deal with the context of an imminent or ongoing lawsuit. So basically, we took what learning there was to be had from people who had experience with mediation, and then we just crafted it into a process that could be applied to civil litigation. And because we knew it was going to be new and people were going to be wondering, "Ah, why should I try doing this? We decided to make it's simple, get it down to a one-day process. So the argument was, you know, hey, it's one day, what do you get to lose? Uh, so basically, we stitched it together and then through trial and error, uh, kind of honed it a bit. And then we did missionary work for years, you know, with her flying around the country, talking to the uh, general counsel of big corporations, talking to the uh, head of claims for insurance companies, talking, in short, to anybody who had a lot of civil litigation and was spending a lot of money uh, in legal fees and saying, hey, why don't you try this, see how it works. And eventually people gave it a try and as much to their amazement, I think as ours, it ended up working uh, right from the get-go, eight or nine times out of 10. Once we got people to sit down and talk, no matter how long the lawsuit had been going on, no matter how complicated it was, no matter how much money they've been spending fighting about it, or how much money was in dispute, eight or nine times out of 10, at the end of the day, they left with an agreement. And that's been true now for the past 42 years. Wow, that's amazing. Um, can you go into how it is that your process is different than, because I remember when uh, I, I did a media um, internship with Tony uh, a few years ago, and I remember you explained to me that mediators sometimes get a bad reputation because they end up you know, doing position bargaining rather than actual mediation, if I remember correctly. Um, how is it that your process is different than and how is it that that process leads to uh, such a successful rate of, uh, me of being in, of mediating? Sorry. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, 99 out of a hundred, I was tempted to say 99 out of 99 mediators don't do what we do. Um, 
I'm not critiquing it, I'm just differentiating it. What they do is basically, if, let's say two parties come in and they've got a dispute over $100,000 and party A is demanding 100 and party B is offering nothing. They come in, they basically go to party A and they say, okay, look, give me some kind of a reasonable demand. I mean, they're not responding to 100 and, you know, and they say, oh, okay, tell them 95. And so they go into the other side and they say, look, 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 I know this is still way too much, but you've got to show some movement here. So give me some kind of offer. And they basically bring offers and demands back and forth with the hopeful result that at some point the parties come together. And that process of um, position bargaining uh, is a time hallowed process, not just for resolving disputes, but you know, for buying things in a bazaar or whatever else, a used car. Um, so it is a process that can work, but not in the context of the kind of cases that we get to work on when parties come in very far apart, when there are complex legal and factual issues. Um, it simply is asking too much of parties to compromise their positions to the degree necessary to touch fingers on terms. When their database is the same as it was when they walked in the door. What I mean by that is some of the disputes that we work on, parties come in literally not just millions of dollars apart, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, on occasion billions of dollars apart. That implicates some pretty sophisticated business people and lawyers, and they've been looking at you know the same data set for a while. They've come to their opinion on what the resolution should be. To ask them to materially change their position without any change in the data set or their perspective on it is just asking too much. And um, the process of position bargaining, the process of civil litigation, it's an adversarial process. Any adversarial process tends to elicit the same reactivity as Newton described in his second law, where every action is eliciting an equal and opposite reaction. In that kind of a reactive environment, you're much more likely to drive things to an impasse by going back and forth with positions because they're just serially ticking each other off by what appear to be unreasonable demands or offers, then you are bringing the parties together. So what we do instead, we just don't do position bargaining. Um, we first start off trying to wrap our heads around what the dispute is about. So we will get briefed by parties sometimes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents and arguments and things. And it's incumbent upon us to actually thoroughly understand what each side's position is to the point where we can sit back and have a reasoned dialogue with them about where they might be overstating their strengths or underestimating their risks. Then through the process, we engage in a continued dialogue with each party. So I'll be in private discussions with party A and in private discussions with party B back to party. If you want to support the podcast or if you like the episode, please share on any of your social media platforms. You can tag the podcast at Joelle's Podcast, or you can do so by going on joelspodcast.com and clicking the support the podcast button on the top right. Thank you. Party A. So that the intended result, instead of having the parties come together across the table and shake hands, 
the intended result is through that kind of a dialogue, have each side come to a mutual understanding with the mediator. And then if they've each come to the same conclusion about what a realistic resolution would be with the mediator, then perforce they've reached an agreement with each other without having to overcome that resistance of that kind of dialectic position bargaining process. Interesting. And I know a part of that process is the joint caucus in the beginning. I remember you saying that a lot of times, you know, when people are arguing and stuff, or at least stating their side, um, they're often not uh, actually listening, but trying to figure out how to uh, retaliate or reply. And uh, how is it that the joint caucus helps by uh, by the mediator replying or your process of restating what it is that's said? So I'll take a step back before that. So again, the way we work, we invite people before the mediation <clears throat> to send us a briefing where they lay out their position. And sometimes that's fairly succinct. Other times it's, you know, couple of banker boxes full of documents and arguments and things. And part of our job is to absorb all of that. Um, and then we start off with everybody in the same room, what we call a joint session. Give each side the opportunity to explain in a summary fashion how they see their position, both to make sure that I as a mediator have got it straight and to make sure that the other side actually understands their position. Now, it's probably hard to imagine, but even when highly intelligent people who are sincerely interested in resolving a dispute are in litigation, sometimes for years, oftentimes there's such a distorting effect from that reactive process, the counterpunching, that the final decision makers on each side really don't understand what the other side's position is and what it's based on. So the joint session is the opportunity um, with people right there at the table who are going to make the final call to hear clearly where the other side is coming from, not because we expect them to agree with that, but so they at least understand it and they can more realistically evaluate their risks and options. And ironically, when people come to hear the other side's position is usually not when it's being presented by the other side, because at that point, they're still in reactive mode in their own minds. They're counter-punching. They're coming up with counter-arguments. What I do as a mediator is once party A has made a presentation of their position, I say, I'm going to summarize back what I've taken away from your presentation. Correct me, please, if I've misunderstood or missed something important. I will then summarize back the presentation. If it was an hour-long presentation, usually in like five to 10 minutes. And if you're able to do that cogently and have the party who made the presentation confirm, yep, you got it, no, no corrections, that was it. You've done a couple of things simultaneously. One, for party A, you've reassured them, okay, well, this guy really does understand where we're coming from and must have done his homework because he couldn't possibly have wrapped his head around all of that unless he had actually studied our briefs and really understood. So you're reassuring party A that you've done your homework, you've heard them, and then when you go into caucus, they're likely to give more credence to your input than if you just started giving them input and they had no idea how much you actually had understood about their position. With regard to party B, again, all the while party A was making its presentation, they're counterpunching in their head and thinking of arguments, but when the mediator is summarizing back 
to party A, what he heard from party A's presentation. Party B is listening very carefully because they're really concerned about what the mediator took, took from all of that. So oftentimes, it's like bumper pool. That's the first time that Party B, at least in terms of their final decision makers, have really heard what the basis was for Party A's position as it is summarized back by the mediator. And then conversely, when the mediator summarized back, excuse me, summarizes back. <laughs> parties these presentations. So the purpose of the joint session in some is to establish in the minds of the parties that the mediator has done their homework, really does understand their position, and therefore there's a basis for a dialogue in caucus and to give credence to the mediator's input and to make sure that each side is starting off not with any agreement, but at least with a clear understanding of what the basis is for the other side's position. Then we move into caucus. Then in caucus, you have a chance to uh, discuss realistically what the options might be for resolution, but predicated not on just, okay, you're here, you have to move to here, but on a dialogue, an iterative process of taking a look at some of the operative facts, some of the arguments that are being made, some of the authorities that are being cited in support of their legal position to the point where party A can start to get a feeling for, okay, looked at a little bit more objectively. I can see where perhaps we're not as strongly positioned as we thought we were. And I've now got a foretaste of how another third party in the role of a judge, a juror, or an arbitrator might be looking at it. And since I know that my alternative to negotiate resolution is eventually to have someone else tell me what their conclusion is. So now I've got another reference point. I've got another important um, piece of data on which I can start to evaluate what is a reasonable settlement. You do that with party B. You continue it to the point where it becomes apparent to someone who's able to look over you know, both fences if this is going to come together where it comes together. And then at some point, I'll come in as a mediator and I'll put a proposal on the table, not because I know that either side or both sides are going to accept it, but because I can see that if there's going to be a resolution at that point, it's going to have to be somewhere around in there. Both parties can consider in confidence initially whether they can live with that. If either party says no, you announce that both sides said no, so no one bids against himself. If both sides say yes, you write it up and you're done. It's a very simple process in that sense. It's simply taking a dialectic where people are trying to bargain across the table and end up with a pretty reactive environment and turning it into a dialogue with the mediator where parties can start to change their position without fear they're bidding against themselves, can start to more objectively see their risks and their options. And as is true in pretty much any other discipline, if you have the same data set and you provide it to a group of experts, whether they're engineers, doctors, whatever the discipline is, experts will tend to cluster in their analyses, their diagnoses, their prescriptions for or predictions of outcome. The same thing tends to happen. Once you have shifted from a dialectic to a dialogue, Sophisticated parties tend to cohere in terms of what they think a realistic outcome could be.
And the nice thing is it's not theory. Uh, it never really was theory because we were always just learning through the School of Hard Knocks. But at this point, we've got 42 years and several thousand um, successful mediations that tell us that that process actually works. Do you think, and I've had the honor to actually see you do it in person, and I think it's quite amazing, but uh, do you believe, do you think it can be replicated? I know it can be replicated. The, and no false modesty, it's 10% maybe at best the skill set of the individual mediator and 90% or more the process. It is the redirecting the dialectic into a dialogue that enables those kind of resolutions rather than any skill, insight, character, traits, or anything else of the mediator. Do you think uh, that it can be improved? I know that's true. It's out hope so. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I somehow managed to stumble into the best iteration of it, it would have been sheer dumb luck and nothing else. I'm sure it can be improved provided that people understand that the underlying problem is physics, not metaphysics, not philosophy, not theory, not anything else. Any iteration of position bargaining is going to increase reactivity. And reactivity is what is distorting perceptions and driving people apart in the first instance. So, yeah, absolutely, it can be improved upon as long as people start off. Just like, you know, can engineering be improved upon? Sure, we keep doing more and more amazing things with it. But you got to start with physics. It's exactly the same thing. Once you understand the physics, that you need to redirect the dialectic into a dialogue, undoubtedly the process can be improved upon. And the practitioners can certainly do a hell of a lot better job than I've done because you can bring people, you know, with with more wisdom, more uh, skills, more diplomacy than I've been able to bring to bear on it. So I think there is there is huge room for improvement and breadth of application. We've been doing it in the context of civil litigation. Occasionally we'll do, you know, pro bono mediation in something, some kind of social conflict, but it is wildly underutilized uh, in terms of its application. Uh, we send perfectly nice, sometimes very bright, very good people in to mediate. Uh, and I do the air um, uh, asterisks there to mediate uh, armed conflicts, to mediate a lot of really important stuff with no mediation training. You know, and it's not criticism. It's simply there's a very, very small set of um, information and skills that are really useful to have if you're going to mediate anything. It's the, you know, the work of maybe a long weekend to actually train anybody in it. But absent that training, you're going to tend to default to, in some fashion, cajoling people, bringing positions back and forth, and you're going to run into um, reactivity. And that's going to be a real heavy weight. I assume, you know, personal emotions stuff may get in the way and given how, uh, personal emotions of the individuals or parties and given how lawyers are trained, do they ever get in the way of the mediation itself? Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's not a problem of itself. People being people, people getting riled up, feeling threatened, feeling angry. That just comes with what terminally gets in the way of the mediation is if I or anyone else as the mediator starts getting, you know, reacting out of my own fears or desires, that is death for the process. Um, So, you know, all the time I have people who are very emotionally invested, either because of the amounts of money that are involved, because their companies seem to be at risk over it, because they feel that they're being attacked unfairly. Um, And that's just people being human. And they absolutely have the right, and maybe it's a good thing to do it, you know, to kind of discharge it. The mediator needs to hold the center um, and not succumb to, well, what's going to make me look good or sound good or, you know, where's my next case going to come from or anything like that. As soon as you interpolate any agenda on the mediator's part, you're um, compromising, if not killing the process. How do you uh, personally keep centered? Well, I don't. Um, but what I've learned to do is to recenter. Um, I would love it if I got to a point around where I just kind of held that steady spot and didn't waver from it. But invariably, you know, all the fears and desires that we are prone to comes up and I start, oh my God, this is impossible. That guy's being a jerk, this and this and this. I've just learned to not stay very attached to that. So it's kind of like, you know, a kid holding onto a helium balloon. At some point, you just open your fingers, the balloon takes off. As long as you're not attached to all the stuff that comes up for you and you can keep coming back to center, then you're good. Was there a, a turning point through your early mediations or or a, a certain case where it kind of uh, the style was ingrained or was it a slow or was it like a continuous process of improvement and stuff? It was a continuous process. I'd like to say it was steady improvement, but progress is not always linear and it certainly wasn't in my case. So it was definitely a process of learning through, you know, we'd try something and like, whoa, whoa, that didn't work too well. And then I had my own unique set of problems, like my thought about how to be a diligent person was to come up with a list of every conceivable, you know, issue that might have to be addressed or was raised in their briefing and then go over 27 points with each side. Um, And besides consuming an awful lot of time, that elicited an awful lot of pushback because out of those 27 points, there would be, you know, quite a few where it was perfectly unreasonable to be, you know, questioning or challenging someone, but I would walk them through all these things anyway. Now, what it looks like usually is there'll be one, two, or three issues that are really driving the risk profile for each side. They may be completely different issues, but out of those 27, there are usually just one, two, or three that are really going to make the difference um, that people really need to draw a little objectivity on. And so what I will do now is, and even as to those one, two, or three, I'll come in with some thoughts about it, some notes about it. But when I first caucus with folk, I don't just come in and say, okay, well, here are your problems, or what do you say about I say and mean, okay, well, nice to have this time with you. Now, before I give you any input, first, is there anything more you think I need to know that wasn't contained in your briefing or we didn't address in the joint session? 
because I want to give you as balanced feedback as possible. And second, having reviewed all this, I'm left with a few questions in my mind. So if you don't have anything to add or when you're done adding anything, let me ask you just a few questions so I can make sure I've got as full a picture as possible for offering any feedback. And then when I offer feedback, it'll be more like, well, okay, this is what I think, you know, the one, two or three things are. And almost invariably now, what instead of getting pushback or arguments, people will say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are we yeah. going to do about that? And, and I'll tell them, you know, give me some patience and let me talk to the other side. And, and, and then we just keep sifting through it, getting more and more refined sense of what the risks are and what options might or might not be realistic up to the point where I can tell people, okay, you know, this process of going through different issues, factual and legal issues has been productive. But I think we've pretty much exhausted the utility of it now. And if this is going to settle, I can give you a sense of what the realm of the possible is and see whether someone is interested once they know what the realm of the possible is in resolving it or whether they want to continue fighting. If they want to continue fighting at that point, then we're done. And they go off and do it. If they want to take a shot at getting it resolved, I explain that there's a process of a mediator's proposal that we can use so that they don't bid against themselves at endgame. I said, because it'll be a shame if you leave here without a resolution. But it'll be much more of a shame if you leave here without a resolution and a new floor or ceiling on any future negotiations you might have. So I explained that this is a nice, safe process. And um, if they say, yeah, go ahead and make a proposal, then I'll make a proposal. Uh, and if both sides say yes to it, then I'll let them know they both said yes and write it up and we're done. And astonishingly enough, eight or nine times out of 10, it gets done. So you've had uh, a handful, I'm sure probably more than a handful of high profile cases. But uh, one of them, if you're allowed to talk about it, probably not about the details, but um, was uh, working with Mark Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, we take, we hold out the confidentiality of the process as an important uh, inducement for people that you know they're not putting anything at risk by engaging the mediation. So we take it very, very seriously, um, the responsibility to keep it confidential. So the only cases that we get to actually talk about with any kind of identifying detail are the handful where the parties have elected to make it public in some fashion. So in the case of the, um, of the Winklevoss twins and, and Mark Zuckerberg, that was the case. The parties made it public that there had been a mediation and what had happened in it. Um, so that is something that I get to talk about. But at this point, I, I stopped counting when I hit 4,000 mediations. And there are, you know, at most a half a dozen that I can actually talk about with identifying details. Now, you can sanitize, you know, the identifying details and talk about things to, you know, kind of draw lessons about what kind of cases, you know, can go in what kinds of ways or what kind of disputes are actually amenable to this kind of process. But in terms of ones that I can actually talk about in any kind of detail, it's it's a very few. Um, did you, was there anything about that case that, that was intriguing or? 
I mean, other than just the profile of Besides it. The pro- no, well, was it a particularly difficult case or was it kind it of... Was, it was a long day. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was, you know, the, the stake of who was going to own Facebook, you know, at stake. And so um, the stakes were high. Um, but in terms of the complexity of the legal issues or the, the factual data set, not unusually um, complex Mm-hmm. Uh, I've certainly had cases that, you know, bend the brain more than that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Um, do you have any desire, and I've, I've asked you this before, and I've, I feel like I've gotten to know every time, but do you have a desire of writing a book or teaching thing and i know and the way you describe it is like oh yeah it's like i can teach it in the weekend and stuff but well i i'll take that as two questions do i have any desire to write a book it is so painful for me personally (laughs) to write anything um you know beyond like a shopping list or something that i cannot say that i have any desire to engage in writing anything in terms of whether i think it would be useful to actually have me write a book about it, it, it is really the same, you know, answer. Um, I, I am flattered at the thought that I might have a book's worth of stuff that is worth sharing with people. I just don't. Um, a handful of really important things, yeah. But literally, there's nothing that I couldn't convey in uh, a weekend including, you know, some demonstrations to kind of triangulate what it is we're talking about um, that is really, I think, critical, important to mm-hmm. know. Um, and that's that's winnowing down 42 years worth of, of experience. The challenge is that it's so simple. And I'll give you um, a sense of that from another perspective. I started teaching um, a martial art called Aikido in 1975. And although I was teaching it for quite a long time, it was only fairly far along in my teaching that I really began to understand it. Because although there were hundreds and hundreds of different techniques that you could practice for thousands of hours, the fundamental learning that the founder of Aikido was trying to get across that you cannot stop fighting by fighting. That the only way to stop a fight was to stop fighting yourself. It was so simple that it just eluded me for years. So I would you know, be practicing these techniques. Um, my teachers, lovely people who had trained directly with the founder because it was a relatively modern art, would teach us, okay, so when your opponent comes in and does this, then you do that. What I didn't get for years, and therefore didn't reflect in my own teaching, was as soon as you started off with the proposition that there's you and your opponent, you're done. Because that dualism assures that there's going to be a space between you and the party you've now defined as not only other, but your opponent. And in that space, you're going to collide. Sure as shooting, it's just physics. Every action that the other does is going to elicit a reaction from you. Now, if you've trained really well, you're adept at it, you're quick, you can do these different moves. 
you can get what appears to be a resolution. If what you consider a resolution to be is that you've knocked someone down or you've pinned them to the ground. But of course, it doesn't take a lot of, of experience to realize that eventually, unless you literally are going to kill that person, they're going to get up and probably not going to be very happy about the exchange they just had with you. And even if nothing comes of it that day, you know, they're either going to be, you know, blindsiding you with a baseball bat, you know, a week later, or just going home and kicking their cat or you can displace conflict with fighting, but you can't ever resolve it with fighting. That's what the founder was trying to teach. But even the founder of Aikido, when he tried to actually teach it, he would talk about, okay, well, when your opponent comes in. And so through all of my years of teaching up until pretty far down the line, I didn't get that if you really want to stop a fight, you also have to let go of trying to decide the outcome of it. So the relevance of that for mediation is, I really do try to wrap my brain around what the dispute is about. I come in unnecessarily with you know some ideas about who's right or wrong on a given issue. But when I go into dialogue, if I keep thinking it's my job to get across to these other people why they're wrong on a certain issue and they should I'm done. I have to come in and be perfectly open to learning through the dialogue that I've got it wrong or I was missing something critical or we're all missing something critical or that's what a dialogue really is. And that proposition of non-dualism is so simple that it is just so damn hard to teach. Um, all of the great religions have been trying to teach that, you know, using different kind of um, frames of reference, different cultural um, backgrounds, different words. But it's always been the same thing. Tatvam asam, you know, the, the Hindus are saying, thou art that. They're trying to tell you, you see like that grain of mustard, that's you. And, and it's also everyone else and everything else. Um, when um, Christ you know, said, said, love thy neighbor as thyself, he was trying to say, because thy neighbor is thyself, because there really isn't any separation. And so those kind of profound, simple insights you can see what we've made, what a muck we've made of, of the world, you know, fighting over <laughs> those propositions of whose version of, of God is right. Um, so is there much really that could be written about? I don't know. Look at all the books that have been written about religions, all the books that have been written about uh, philosophies and things. It doesn't seem to have done a lot to have advanced um, the quality of our uh, uh, humanhood. Um, I'm not nearly wise enough to have a book's worth of stuff to say. What I have is is now decades of experience in knowing, ah, okay, there is actually physics. And if you know the physics, you can structure a process in a way that will provide the opportunity, not the necessity, for people to stop fighting. 
Um, but that's just, you know, saying in more words or from, you know, slightly different um, perspective, what we talked about, you know, in the first 10, 15 minutes of this. So how do we, because I mean, if you look at the world today, I mean, we're so divided, whether it's you know, politically or religiously, I mean, people will literally hate another person just on what they choose to believe in and stuff. And within a mediation or an argument where there's legal, you know, you have you, you have the mediator who's an objective third party, but how can we close that gap when it's two individuals or two people who may not necessarily believe the same thing, but they should still be able to cope and live in a society without, you know, having to destroy one another. Yeah, I wish I had an answer to that. Um, I don't think the problem is you need to have a third party. The problem is that most of us have never had the experience of letting go of that illusion of separation and not getting hurt. Uh, I'll give you an iteration of that. Um, I, I just came back from... Um, I've been luxuriating for the past year and a half um, in not having to travel to my office on the mainland to do mediations and doing everything by Zoom. But um, on Sunday, I actually had flown in uh, to LA uh, to do my first in-person mediation since the pandemic started. And I had some pretty high-powered people on both sides of a dispute um, that was really just about to seriously hit the fan, pretty entrenched positions. Um, and we went through a process. And by the end of the process, they got that, well, okay, this is different. And now these are people who are incredibly sophisticated, extremely intelligent, they had simply never had the experience before. It had never been demonstrated to them that you could actually go into a process where you're not fighting with the other side and have it work out in a way that you felt safe, uh, you felt not taken advantage of, even felt good about it. And I was able to turn to you know the main decision makers on both sides and tell them honestly i said wow this was wonderful thank you because i guarantee you this outcome that you're now both happy with was not a function of any skill that i brought to bear on the situation this was each of you stepping up to make decisions in a humane way um, out of respect for each other. Um, and it was. And they were so jazzed by that. Now, next time they're in a dispute, are they going to be able to replicate that without having the buffer of a third party? I don't know. But what they have now that can't be taken away from them, they have the embodied experience of knowing that it's possible. I had a mediation a couple of years ago with a gentleman, a billionaire who was pretty sophisticated in business disputes. And at the end of the day, when I let him know that it was resolved and that he had 
trusted to let me know what he could live with. Though all of his experience in life told him, you know, you tell people, you know, what you're actually willing to do, you're going to get taken advantage of. And he wasn't taken advantage of, and it got resolved. And the way he iterated was, he, he said, wait, 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 I can't leave yet. He had his private jet waiting for him. You know, you only got a certain window to have to take off. He said, no, I'm sorry, I, I can't leave yet. There's a hole in my universe. We don't get a lot of opportunities to experience not just letting our guard down, really letting ourselves trust and be open and not get hurt. Sometimes people trust and get open and, and let themselves be open with people that they love and they've been in a relationship and they still get hurt. So most of us just haven't had the embodied experience to know that you can actually resolve a conflict without fighting it to the end. But when people have that experience, it's always there. You know, you, you can't take that away. Um, so kind of wandered far afield from your question, but getting back to it, do I think when I look around the world right now and I see how particularly divisive, you know, even in our own society, let alone, you know, across the globe, things have gotten to be and how the ramifications of fighting seem to be more instantaneous and destructive than they ever used to be. Because it used to take a while to really start a good, you know, fight going. Now, like instantaneous, you know, something can be on the internet one day and the next day, you know, it's, you're getting a ramification of it, a violent, awful one somewhere else. Yeah, it's scary. Um, is it more, do you think it's more so than usual or is the world always in a sort of state of chaos? I think it's always been the case that people have looked back and said, you know, when I was a boy, it didn't used to be like this. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Mm -hmm. And by a lot of metrics, life is a lot better than it used to be. I mean, we rightly point out how awful different kinds of things are. But if you look back just a hundred years, they were a lot worse. What's different now is the rapidity with which the repercussions of unmanaged fighting can manifest and the severity because the speed of communication, I don't want to just you know say the internet because it's a lot of things, but the speed with which things are communicated now, often in a distorted fashion, how people can then get together because there's only so much damage that one person can do but people can now get together even across the globe at great distances and act um that's what's different now the rapidity and the um intensity of the ramifications of unmanaged conflict i don't know how much of a runway we have on that um, well, I think the other side of the coin of that is that, uh, everyone, you know, there is that uh, negative side of the connectedness, connectedness and stuff, but there's also the other side of the coin where, you know, people can get together and make change for good if they wanted to. So what I'd like to add to that equation 
is to demonstrate on enough of a scale that enough people come away with, if not the directly embodied experience, but with some kind of embodied experience of, oh, okay, so there actually is another way to deal with this. That's where I feel so blessed with my Aikido training. You know, at some point, you can philosophize till the cows come home. But when you actually experience that you approach things one way and you get whopped up the side of the head, you approach them a different way and all of a sudden, you know, things got resolved without um, violence. It starts to sink into your cells in a different way. It becomes an internalized reference point. Um, that you don't even have to consciously go to. It just starts uh, influencing how you respond to situations. I, I think that your point that people can start coming together through the same medium that is currently driving a lot of people apart probably is our only hope. Um, what it'll take is for somehow people to have enough people to have a shared embodied experience of what it's like to come together in a sense of reunion. I don't want to wax too um, philosophical <laughs> about it, but I think the underlying reality is non-dualistic. Um, everything in my life you know, has confirmed that, that it's just this kind of pernicious illusion of separation that keeps uh, having us um, uh, butting heads with each other and hurting each other. Um, when people, when enough people can have the experience that that separation is um, is really an illusion, that we are all connected, and maybe it's going to take you know some really god awful global crisis to get that across. You know, maybe it's going to be confronting another level of the repercussions of climate change or another level, God forbid, of a pandemic or something else that is going to finally, you know, break down that um, that illusion of separation and have people realize, oh gosh, there is no me without you. Yeah, unfortunately, fortunately and, and unfortunately, it seems like in history, a lot of people or groups of people have come together over a common theme, whether it's a common enemy or common uh, strive for greatness and stuff. But I feel like uh, two important things that some people forget that I think could help or improve the situation is, you know, being objective or having objectivity and being empathetic or having empathy for whoever it is. Um, but those are two, being objective is, it's incredibly difficult, I think, for some people, uh, probably easier for others than some. But I think if, in theory, imagine if you are 100% objective, then logically you are able to see, you know, what is the, I think what would be the best way or the correct way of doing things. The problem is that people can't be 100% objective. And I think it's asking a lot, but if you're able to, you remove some of the, the, the clouds of judgment of that, you know, your personal emotions or personal beliefs can have. 
don't know. Does that make sense? Entirely. Yeah. Um, how to give people that um, without uh, without uh, an event? Yeah, or an occasion to actually, or without. I have the luxury that I actually get people to sit down for a day and talk. Um, most conflicts out there in the world that luxury is not afforded to people They're too busy shooting at each other or throwing bricks at each other or hurling insults at each other um so yeah that is the challenge you know what is going to give people the space for a dialogue because once you have a dialogue a, a true dialogue not where you're trying to you know not a debate not where you're trying to score points um where you're actually opening up to hearing and feeling what someone else is saying or thinking. Once you have that, enough objectivity, maybe not perfect congruence, but enough objectivity flows from that, that most disputes in my experience kind of like go away. Um, people can agree, if they can't agree on what's optimal, at least they can agree on what's the best available outcome. Having that space where that dialogue can occur is a challenge. Yeah, I agree. Especially this day and age, people go into things, even if it's just day-to-day life, with uh, with an idea already, pre- premature idea made up, right? Without having the the foresight of thinking to be open-minded and objective to whatever it is that they're about. And then impervious to anything that tends to undercut or challenge that as well. So it's not just that people come in with preconceptions, but they come in with armored preconceptions. Um, And I I actually found myself as recently as this morning um, noticing that tendency in me. I was listening to a podcast. Um, it was talking about uh, an event where, you know, that I had some familiarity with the event and I had opinions. I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it or voicing to myself. But I definitely had opinions about right or wrong with regard to that. And as I listened to it and started seeing another perspective, I realized, well, actually, you know, you know my opinions maybe were not really the best um, take on that situation and in some sense maybe just you know flat wrong um but if you don't have you know i was kind of like in my car listening to a podcast we don't have at least some setting within which you can have a dialogue even a dialogue with yourself um then there isn't a lot of opportunity to notice the degree to which your perceptions may be um slanted confined mm-hmm. or just dead wrong do you have for future mediators do you have any suggestions or uh tips not tips recommendation the words not coming to me but uh anything that you would uh, suggest them to do or think of keep an open mind to you know, how would you, if you could set the future mediators of the world on a certain path? What I'm actually itching to do is to talk to the future lawyers because we have a 
um, conundrum. Uh, we have a paradox in our society. We have a system of civil adjudication that is predicated on adversarial model where um, people are taught in law school that their job, whether it's in putting together a transaction or in trying to sort out a dispute in court, is to represent their client by the definition of taking their client's position and trying to get them the best possible outcome. Whenever you have a system where party A has someone who is just trying to get the best possible outcome for party A, and party B has someone who's trying to get the best possible outcome for party B, you have a classic dialectic. And it's just going to keep going. And so you're going to have a lot of friction loss, a lot of waste. Um, and the end result um, is not likely to be what uh, Hegel would have postulated, which is thesis, antithesis, ah, synthesis. And now we have, you know, a higher level of truth somehow. Uh, it's more likely to just be protracted, pointless fighting. But that's what we train law students to be. And then they become lawyers who do that. And I'm not criticizing. I know some lovely, brilliant people who are lawyers. Uh, and I'm not criticizing the system because I don't know that I could come up with a better alternative to people just, you know, going at each other with baseball bats. But I would love for law students to hear while they're still at a more formative stage, that that is a dialectical process and that they have choice in how they participate in it. So for example, the iteration that you get in law school is that it's not your job to, I mean, unless your client is trying to do something, you know, flatly illegal, um, in which case you might have an ethical obligation to withdraw. It's not your job to decide what's right or wrong. Your job is to just get the best possible outcome for your client. Well, that is moral nonsense. You know, in what other field would we countenance the proposition being that you somehow are relieved of your obligation as a human to make your best possible call on right or wrong before you add your weight to an equation? You know, if, if as a father, you know, you came upon your child and another child, you know, squabbling over a bike. I don't think you would just try to get the bike for your child. You try to figure out whose bike it is and then do the right thing. Well, I would love for law students to get both that. While it's true that their job is to be an advocate, that doesn't mean being relieved of responsibility for trying to do the right thing. And that if you don't get that, you're going to generate an awful lot of waste and risk for your own clients because you're going to be participating on their behalf in a dialectic. And that's going to be cost inefficient. And it's going to keep raising the risk and the stakes uh, for both sides. Um, so I would love to be able to less, I'm less drawn to trying to teach a future generation of mediators 
So I'd be happy, you know, to spend a weekend <laughs> with anybody and tell them the little I, I know about mediating and much more inclined to just point out the simple physics to law students that say, hey, you have a choice. If this is what you want to do with your life, understanding is going to generate a lot of gratuitous uh, waste and risk. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to stand in front of some version of God and explain, you know, why you thought you were relieved from responsibility to do what all we mortals have to do, which is every day in everything we do or fail to do, ask ourselves, are we doing the right thing? And that. I'd love to be able to somehow sit down with law students and uh, have that conversation with them. I wish someone had had that conversation with me when I was in law school. Do you think it's the way we currently teach law students or do you think that the legal construct of how things are done? It's the latter. And then the former follows from that. The legal construct is that um, a lawyer's job is to get the best possible outcome for their client limited only by you know fairly narrow ethical constraints in terms of what you can or can't do right um you can't lie to the court you can't destroy evidence you know but anything that you can legally do it's supposed to be not only okay to do it it's the mark of how well you're doing your job to find every possible thing you could do for your client and do it without regard to what you think is right or wrong. Now that's heresy, you know, for, uh, I was actually on a panel um, last month and there was a lawyer and I said, wait, 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 wait. Who, who made you God? Uh, how do you get to impose your, you know, own sense of ethics on other people? And I said, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but what's the alternative, you know, to think that we have a hall pass from making ethical decisions because we're, doesn't that get, low battery, doesn't that get perilously close to, I was just following orders? I mean, where does that stop? Where does that lead us? Uh, so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's baked into the system, but we can substantially mitigate what comes with this because we're not going to suddenly give up our, for example, adversarial system of civil litigation. You know, that's going to be with us for a while. We can approach it differently. We can early on, you know, tell a client, okay, look, our alternative to negotiate resolution is eventually going to be to have someone in the role of a judge, a juror, an arbitrator tell us how it sounds to them. Maybe we should sit down, you know, earlier and be good scientists. Let's test it. Let's run it by someone and see what kind of feedback we get. And in the course of doing that, Let's be candid with them, maybe not across the table because we don't want to give um, uh, ammunition to the other side to attack us. But maybe we could have a candid dialogue, you know, with the mediator about what the facts really are and what we think about this and think about that. We could teach people that they're swimming upstream unnecessarily against laws of physics to simply be as strong an advocate as you can um, and instead do actually better service for the client by being as balanced an evaluator as you can. That would fall onto the individual themselves. Yeah, pretty much everything does.
<laughs> we have all these constructs where we try to like voice the responsibility onto the state or you know God or someone else, but yeah, it pretty much all comes back to the individual. Interesting. That's amazing. Um, I think Are we done. I think we should end it right there. I think because we should I think too. That, yeah. Well, Tony, this has been amazing. Um, I always love talking to you. I always, I feel like I, I always learn something new. Um, and it's definitely mentally stimulating. So thank you very much uh, for joining me and for uh, giving me your time. Thank you. All right. Thank. Oh wait, where can uh, people, if they want, if they find themselves in uh, one of these precarious situations, where can uh, they find your firm? They can't. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty much a ghost in terms of being out there in, in public. But but if the necessity arises, I'm sure that they'll be able to figure out how to figure do it. it. All right. Well, thank you very much. You take care. Thank you.